thoughts uh, that uh, faithfulness of God, I could not have told you what all happened in 1949, the year I was born. <laughs> uh, as for, for those who uh, like genealogy, I was named after two of my great-grandfathers. My uh, grandfather on my daddy's side was John Robert Swartz, and a great-grandfather on my mother's side was John Robert Swope. So I got my name John Robert Swartz, sort of honestly. I have an older brother, uh, Carol, two years older, and a younger sister, Hilda, four years younger. Hilda lives in Georgia, married Philip Barnhart. I'll give you the uh, three-minute version of my life story uh, from the uh, Leaders and Institutions booklet of 1991. The uh, conference comes out with one of these about every 10 years. This was the first one. This was the second one. And then the uh, fifth one just came out. And uh, interestingly, in this one here, there's 77 names that were not in the first one. So time changes things. But anyway, just reading what was written up for the, uh, our little uh, page and a half write-up, which would have been written in the late 1980s. On May 27, 1949, God blessed the little boy with birth. He was named John Robert Swartz by his parents, Carolee and Yoma Kaufman Swartz. For his first 25 years, he lived just a mile west of the Pike Mennonite Meeting House. In the spring of 1961, by receiving and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, John was given the right to become a child of God, thus being born the second time. At about 20 years of age, the Lord impressed upon him, Matthew 6, 33 is the life motto, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. John has marveled at how perfectly God keeps his promises. On May 5, 1973, Anna Marie Good joined John to begin a new family unit. As of 1989, the Creator has added two boys to this unit. In 1974, James was born. Since 1979, John and Adam Mary have been foster parents for Billy, born in 1976. Desiring to invest his life in that which would outlive it, John trained to be a teacher, reasoning that teachers work with children and children last for eternity. He has been privileged to work with children directly in teaching and indirectly in helping to provide them with godly educational materials. In 1974, the family moved to Wango, West Virginia, and John began teaching at North Fork Christian School. On May 9, 1982, at the North Fork Mennonite Meeting House, John was ordained to the ministry. He served the Brushy Run Congregation near Wungo for four years and is now serving the Brush Run Congregation near Bartow, West Virginia. When John was in his early 30s, the master teacher taught him an additional life motto, Seekest thou great things for thyself, seek them not, Jeremiah 45, 5. This too has helped give direction to life and perhaps avoid some pitfalls. John's continuing desire is that by his life, others may glorify his Father who is in heaven. He keenly senses that since Christ died for all, they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again, 2 Corinthians 5.15. John looks forward to the time when, freed from earthly limitations, he can ultimately fulfill the purpose of his creation by worshiping him that liveth forever and ever, for he is worthy.
Uh, this, that book, that little write up there said, for the first 25 years, uh, I grew up, <clears throat> I lived a mile from the Pike Church. <clears throat> That's not quite accurate. <clears throat> when I was born, Dad was working for uh, Jordan Brothers uh, Farm. Uh, if you, uh, there on Freedom's Church Road, if you turn on Freedom's Church Road there at Mount Crawford, you go across 81 and you, uh, <clears throat> before you get to the railroad track, then Jordan Farms is there. And, uh, and there's a little <clears throat> lane called, I think it's called Creekside Lane now. It goes back, and they live back that lane in a little tenant house. But I don't remember living there. Uh, the only growing up I remember is, is, was on the farm, uh, which was a mile west of the Pike Church. Like if you come out of the Pike Church parking lot onto uh, Liskey Road and turn left, and you go then past the, the lane goes to the implement place and you go on you go up to the top of the hill there's a sharp curve to the right and there's a steep lane down to the left that was the Dan Beery farm well anyway you're going around the curve and you go down the hill on another curve and Mail and Hurst place was on the right and then you go up the hill and you go down the hill and then on the left Lewis Bird Road and so you turn on Lewis Bird Road, and then we were the first farm there on the right, uh, where Ray Good is now. That's where I grew up. Uh, <clears throat> a few memories from childhood, and I don't remember uh, as many things as well as some people. I'm not like the old fellow that said he remembered everything that ever happened to him and lots that didn't. Um, I might remember some things that didn't. I might have not everything quite straight, but I'll give it as uh, best I remember. Um, and of course, just picking up, picking out a few things here and there. Uh, one thing I thought about was, um, I remember in a corner of the pantry, a little kerosene cook stove. That was her cook stove. Um, back then, people didn't have as much, and especially, um, like Dad was in CPS from 19, well, for about four and a half years, I think, and they didn't get paid much back then. And so when he got out, they were married in June of 1946, so they didn't have much to start with. And so um, a few years, I don't remember exactly when, I remember that little kerosene stove, but then I remember mother getting an electric stove too. And another thing I remember, we, the kitchen table we had um, was something I think they found at a sale for a dollar. And um, Uncle David Kaufman put a, a uh, scrap piece of linoleum on top, and that was the kitchen table we had growing up. And it had a feature that even today's $1,000 tables don't have. It sagged a little bit in the middle, so when something spilled, things ran toward the middle. And um, so uh, a couple memories uh, where the Lord kept me from physical harm. I remember as a boy, uh, the uh, grind and feed, the feed grinder would come as mounted on the back of a truck. But then uh, somewhere, probably in the 1950s, I'm not quite sure exactly when, um, the feed grinders started coming in, feed grinder mixers, and uh, Dan Beery's uh, had bought one, and so we would borrow theirs uh, to grind feed once a week. And uh, my brother and I, we were going over to pick it up, and uh, I don't remember if it was on the VAC case or the 530, but we were going down the hill there towards uh, uh, Mail and Hearst on the way over to get it. And uh, I was sitting on the fender and he was driving and uh, the fender came off the tractor and went down under the wheel. Well, I grabbed the steering wheel 
and he must have had a pretty good hold on it because uh, it kept going straight. Um, and so we got the field grinder, and on the way home, we stopped and picked up the fender and went on home. Um, when I was a little older, I think I would have been, uh, this would probably been in the spring of 1965, um, got home from school. Uh, I was going to Ashby, got home from school on the bus, and uh, there was a note on the table that I was to go pick up mother at the sewing factory. Um, I don't know all the circumstances why nobody else was there. My sister and I would have gotten home from school, and um, and uh, maybe Dad was out on a Raleigh route. We had uh, he had an old station wagon. He did uh, a Raleigh route to try to make a little income, cause he couldn't do a lot of farm work because of his back trouble, and. Uh, and then we had another car, maybe my brother Carol had that at school or something, he went to MHS. And um, anyway, mother worked at the sewing factory for a few years there in the mid-60s. There were some dry years, and uh, so mother went to work at the sewing factory to um, get a little income to buy feed for the cows. It had been some dry years. And, and so anyway, I was to go get her, and the only vehicle that was there was the old farm truck, which is a 1953 or 54, international uh, one-ton truck and so I, st I started down the road um, Lewis Bird Road it was dirt dirt road gravel road then and about down where David Hurst lives now I got in the gravels to the left and I overcorrected and the truck was going towards the culvert on the right side of the road I don't know if I suppose that culvert's still there but uh, anyway um, I'm not the most glorious driver and uh, don't know how to take risk. Anyway, before the truck actually dropped into the culvert, I fainted. And uh, the truck did a complete flip. And so I came to uh, up against the roof of the cab on the passenger side. And uh, the truck was upside down. And, uh, and I crawled out through the broken windshield. And a neighbor lady came out from, a, from the house there. And she wondered if somebody had been killed. And, and I, like I say, I crawled out through the windshield and I said, uh, would you take me up to Bridgewater to get my mom? And uh, so she did. And, uh, and I remember mother had already started walking home. And uh, so we pulled up beside her and I kind of, I forget what I said, but she's, I could see she was a little bit dubious at first about getting in the car, but then she did. And by the time we got home, there's some people that had been some people on a work truck Evidently, we're taking that road home, and they took some ropes or something to the truck and turned it over on its wheels, and so Dad drove it around town, got some estimates on it, and got it fixed. But uh, I didn't get hurt, uh, so. I uh, went to Dayton Elementary School for grades one to seven, and then Turner Ashby High School, uh, grades eight to 12. I was baptized in the summer of 1961. I was 12 years old. I didn't uh, progress much until I was about 17. And um, I guess maybe I'll share this too, um, where maybe the Lord protected me from spiritual danger. We had a phys ed class, uh, eighth, ninth, and 10th grade, you were required to take phys ed and health. We have phys ed three days, health two days, and then the next week would alternate. But uh, back then, they, I was just 
reading up a little bit on that, there was a big push for physical fitness in the late 50s and early 60s, the President's Council on Physical Fitness. So we did these different, different um, activities for physical fitness, like um, set-ups and pull-ups and, and uh, well, I don't know, some other things. But anyway, we were doing these things in the spring, and uh, one of the activities was the running broad jump. And I was getting along pretty good with that, and so they wanted me to go out for the track team, which I did. And, uh, but then the way it turned out, it was late enough in the season that all the regular meets were over, and so all that was left was the district meets. And I was not eligible to participate in the district meet because I had not participated in any regular meets. And so by the next year, in, that was in between there where I got more interested in my spiritual life and by the next year I was not interested in that kind of sports anymore. And so if I would have actually gotten involved in sports, it probably would not have been too healthy for me spiritually. I was interested in being a teacher. I'm not sure when it started. Uh, late elementary, you know, people ask you, what are you going to want to be when you grow up? I don't remember what I said when I was a little boy, but I know from late elementary on up, I, I was interested in being a teacher. And as I progressed in my Christian life, that didn't change. Uh, perhaps it even enhanced it. Um, I went to college to train for teaching. I thought I'd be a public school teacher, a state-supported missionary, so to speak. But, but by the time I got out, uh, our conference was starting uh, Christian day schools. And my, uh, my first year uh, in college, I'd been 18, I'd been 18, and I had an um, uh, episode or situation in my life that I think I'll just read what I wrote up for something uh, a few years ago. I made a public profession of Christ as my personal savior when I was nearly 12 years of age. In the following years, I did not grow much spiritually. Around age 17, I became more serious about my Christian life. Sometime along in there, I read an account of a person who prayed that God would bring something into their life that would help them grow spiritually. They broke their leg. I thought that spiritual growth would be worth a broken leg. So I prayed that God would bring something into my life to help me grow spiritually. I was in my first year of college, studying hard to try to make good grades. I was also helping my father on the farm, as well as staying involved in church life, teaching a junior Sunday school class and active in the youth group. In the spring of 1968, gradually I was sleeping less and less at night and eventually lost my appetite and was eating very little. My concerned parents took me to our family doctor who realized I was overwhelmed mentally. I was within a hair's breadth of having a complete mental breakdown. The doctor gave me some medication to help me get back to a normal sleep schedule, as well as some medication to deal with my overwrought brain. I also needed to make adjustments to my school load and other responsibilities. That was a difficult time mentally and spiritually. I doubted my salvation, struggled with irrational thoughts, and endeavored to maintain some sort of equilibrium. But in the midst of struggle, there was growth. The Lord dealt with various needs in my life. It was not until months later that I realized this mental trauma was an answer to my prayer. I would have preferred a broken leg to a broken brain, 
Uh, yes, they can both heal. Ever since then, I've been limited in what I can handle mentally, but for the most part, I've learned to accept and live with my limitations. Even though I am limited, God loves me no less. He loves me because I'm his child, not because of my level of performance. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6, my son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Growth comes through suffering. And as the uh, shorter write-up that I had uh, written, uh, read there in the uh, Leaders and Institutions book said, the um, Lord, long in there, late teens, maybe 20, Lord gave me that motto, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things should be added unto you. Now, while I was at Bridgewater, uh, in school there at Bridgewater College, I associated with a group called the Navigators. Uh, that was an evangelical group on campus. I think maybe just started about that time. Actually, the fellow that started it, uh, I think, he would have been sort of the instigator, uh, had dropped out of the Air Force Academy because of um, something about his eyesight. I think you have to have perfect eyesight or something. So he's very resilient. But anyway, the Navigators, they emphasized just a couple things they emphasize. They emphasize your daily quiet time, they emphasize Bible memory, and they emphasize witnessing. And they didn't just talk about it, they gave you tools. So I remember uh, I brought some things along, um, like um, uh, your daily quiet time, or what we call the daily devotionals, a little, a little leaf. See, they were used to working with people maybe that didn't have a lot of uh, spiritual background, or at least a very healthy spiritual background. And uh, so they had things to help them get going. And so they had this little little leaflet called Seven Minutes with God, how to plan a daily quiet time. And then uh, they had uh, this thing called Devotional Diary. And uh, it, um, it was how to have a quiet time. And it wasn't like, um, so this gave readings for the whole year, but it wasn't reading through your Bible in a year. It was just like five to eight verses at a time. And uh, so the schedule was it went through, start with the book of John, then the book of Romans, Ephesians, Proverbs, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and then Psalm 119, a couple other Psalms, first few chapters of Matthew, and that rounded out the year. But uh, so uh, in these little, just a little space about like that, had a place to write the date, a place to write the passage uh, verses, I mean, you know, the reference. And then uh, you're supposed to give that passage a title uh, called The Wondrous Thing. And then you were to write down uh, in a few lines The Wondrous Thing in the context and then uh, several more lines, you were supposed to write the wondrous thing applied to my life. So the uh, wondrous thing to look for, it said, profit from this time with God by applying the wondrous thing to your daily life. Try to state specifically how this thought can help you be more like Christ. It may be a new or wondrous thought about Christ, a promise to claim, a command to obey, an example to follow, a sin to forsake, an error to avoid. Finally, commit your application to the Lord in prayer. It is only by his power that we 
will really be changed. And then they had an example to give you sort of a head start how to do it. And the example they gave was Mark 1, 1 to 8. And the title they gave it was One Mightier Than I. And it said, John the Baptist prepared the way of the Lord. This was the thing in context. He saw Christ's greatness and considered himself unworthy to do anything for Christ, even a servant's task. And then the one this thing applied to my life, what they wrote is for an application. I need to consider myself humbly unworthy of God's gifts and calling. Indeed, I too am an unworthy servant. I will tell God of my unworthiness this morning, praising him for his worthiness, worthy is the Lamb. And so, uh, actually, I, have a, I had a blank when I got a hold of somewhere. Uh, and I looked, I looked up, they don't even sell it anymore. But uh, that was a tool. And then another thing they emphasized was scripture memory. And uh, again, they had, they had a plan. Uh, the topical memory system had 108, mostly verses. Some of the passages or cards had two, two, two verses. And so it came in, uh, well, they started out with a couple little packs. But it came in packs like this, 36 verses in a card. And so like for college students, you'd put these cards in your little pack and keep them in your pocket. Like walking between classes, you could look at your card. Uh, in other words, had a, you could put the, the verse out here in this plastic, clear plastic where you could just pull it out of your pocket and look at it. Now, nowadays, people do things in a different way. But um, the, 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 there's a, they gave you a method of how to do it, of how to memorize. And, um, and then had some, they had some booklets uh, that went along with these, uh, these various uh, verse packs. And so it was, uh, like I say, it wasn't just talking about it, it was telling you how to do it, which was very helpful. And the other thing they emphasized was witnessing. And I don't remember what all tools they may have had for that. I remember going to some of their conferences. They would have some conferences over here at Massanutten Springs. And, uh, but anyway, uh, I think that emphasis was uh, probably spurred me on to some of that too. And uh, there were a couple of us at Pike that were interested in outreach, witnessing in the local community. I remember Eldwin Camel, I think it was Eldwin going with me, that we would go, uh, I think we went like Mosby Road, we went to the trailer park down below the Pike Church, and some other places, I think. I don't remember all. I, we canvassed in Dayton, I know. But we, we had kind of a little, little um, questionnaire or some survey. We would ask people, like, you know, if they went to church or I don't know what we asked them. You know, we'd knock on the door and, and say we was doing this. We were, from, I guess we probably identified ourselves where we were from and tell them we were doing this little survey or something. But um, now, Eldwin, I did not remember this. But Eldwin says the first time we did this, or went out, um, it was he and myself and Howard Brubaker, and we drove up somewhere in the Bethany community to some house that I don't know if Howard or Eldon was familiar with or what. And we drove into the driveway and we looked at each other, who's gonna go in? Who's gonna be first? And we looked at each other and nobody went in, so we drove back home. Uh, but uh, anyway, it didn't stop there. <laughs> so uh, never give up. <laughs> I graduated from Bridgewater in 1971, and I was, I was burned out. I was tired of studying, 
And uh, I applied a few places for a teaching position, but didn't get hired. And uh, after half a year, I was ready to go back to school. Uh, back then, um, people would often start teaching right out of their four year of college. And uh, they really encouraged you to get your master's degree and people would often work out in the summer school or night school or whatever. And I didn't feel like I could handle that teaching and trying to go to school at the same time. It was too much for me. So I decided I'd just go on and get my master's degree. So I went to Madison. Uh, Bridgewater didn't have master's. Madison did. And uh, most people can get it in one year. It took me three years. Uh, between my, before my last year we were married, Anna Mary and I were married May 5, 1973. I had one year yet to go at Madison. So graduated in 1974 from Madison in August, and a couple of weeks later we moved to Wungo to teach at North Fork Christian School. We had already volunteered, Anna Marie and I had talked about it. Mission Committee was asking for help in the West Virginia churches. Uh, it's an ongoing request, I guess, because it's still being asked. But the mission committee had made known a desire for some workers, and so uh, we volunteered before we were asked. And uh, something else, if I remember right, uh, well, while I, was still, while I was still at Madison, John Rissard asked me about teaching at Berea, and I said, well, I want to finish school first. And, uh, but then, in the meantime, the conference had started. Well, okay, so how was that? In the meantime, the school had started in West Virginia, I guess. See, Berea started in 72 and North Fork started in 73. Um, so Larry Showalter had asked me about uh, possibility of teaching at North Fork, and I think I'd indicated a willingness to do that. And I hope I'm telling this right, but as I remember, after he'd asked me, he came back later and said, well, we might not need you. We might have found a better man. And uh, that was Fred Miller he was talking about because Fred had been teaching in the public school for quite a number of years. He was an experienced teacher. So what happened, they ended up hiring both of us uh, because Carolyn Good, Sister Carolyn Good, Paul had taught when, when North Fork opened, um, they just had grades one to eight in one room. And Carolyn Good taught that first year but then she didn't teach after that. Uh, she ended up marrying Alan Roth. And so they hired Brother Fred to teach the elementary and they hired me to school. And uh, well, that was, I guess you might say, part of the outworking of my life motto too, to seek first the kingdom of God because we'd been married one year. We had a three month old son. I still had college debt, not like nowadays. I only had $1,700, but to go back in West Virginia and teach at a half salary at that time because it was only four students. Um, it didn't really, financial aspect didn't really bother me. Uh, some years later, uh, I remember there was some uh, interest in starting a outreach at Elkins, West Virginia, and a young couple, a young family, I should say, probably it was, from this area was interested in that. And uh, the young man's father said, what's in West Virginia? 
In other words, I think he was saying not much economic opportunity back there. Maybe that's still the attitude, I don't know, because the mission committee is asking for families to go back and help support the churches there. And some drive back on Sunday, but so far I don't know of any that have moved. Well, uh, when we, uh, so, when we went back there to try to find a place to live, we looked at a couple different places. And um, uh, one of the farmers in the area, he was president of the bank at Harmon. He was just a cattle farmer, a nice old fellow. But he had, um, he had a house right across from where Larry Showalter lived there on the curve in one go. And um, he told Larry, he said, now I've been charging $50 a month for rent. But he said, if you can get somebody in there, I only charge them 40 So first 10 years we lived there, we paid $40 a month rent. And it was... Um, it was very adequate. It was a nice-sized house. Um, it was an older house. Uh, some different experiences we had there. One time we found a snake skin behind the dresser. We never did find the snake. Um, one time when I got home, uh, we were somewhere got, got home at night and uh, opened the door under the sink, cabinet door, and I was looking at a possum. And so I got down underneath and put some wire where the floor had rot, uh, rot, rotted out so that I wouldn't have to visit a possum anymore. Um, another time we came home and uh, there was a blackbird, or no, a starling flying around in the house. And I forget how he got in. We thought maybe he came down the chimney and through the cook stove. But um, anyway, so um, it was... Um, uh, the older house like that, it uh, didn't have closets. Now, there was a room upstairs. Well, actually, later on, so the house was built in a couple different sections, and off to the kitchen, later on, they had added a bathroom and a, and a small pantry, uh, I mean, many years before we moved there. And then above that add-on was a long, narrow a room, and so we used that for our closet. I know one time Mark Wangers were visiting us, and and we were showing him around the house, and he said, this is the biggest walk-in closet he's ever seen. And so, uh, anyway, so we were there till 1986. So like I said, James was born in May of 1974, and we moved in August of 1974. Somewhere along in the 1970s, we, we uh, inquired about foster care and took the training. I don't know if our training had been finished yet or not, but they called one day and said he's bringing, he's bringing a child the next day. And I forget how much they told us about the child. I was, uh, I was at school, I was teaching, and about 10 o'clock, I think it was about 10 o'clock, uh, we must have had a phone at school by then, and Anna Murray must have called the school and said she had all she could take. So, I, uh, I went home, Brother Fred could cover my students, and uh, Billy, that was Billy, he was a little over three years old, he's, he had just turned three, I think. He's, he was a full-blown fetal alcohol syndrome child, and he had already been in several foster homes, so I guess, uh, anyway, when I got home, okay, the house was one of these older style houses like you come in the front door, we, you didn't enter that way anymore because I suppose when the house was built, the Route 33 hadn't been established yet, at least the way it was, the way it is now. 
And but anyway, the front entrance. But anyway, you'd come in the front entrance, and so then there's there was on the right there was a sitting room, you know, and then the steps went up, and then there was a hall that went back into the main part of the house, a small, a small living room and the kitchen. And Billy was starting the kitchen. He had run through the house, hit the wall on the other side at the end of the house, turn around, back to the kitchen, back and forth, yelling at the top of his voice the whole time. And so, um, so I had asked, uh, you know, there, even back then their training was that you couldn't use corporal punishment. And I said, well, what, what are you supposed to do? And they said, oh, you know, pick them up and just squeeze them. So Billy, he was, he was three years old. He was wiry. He was 20-some pounds. And uh, so I picked him up, and I squeezed him. And I kept on squeezing him and squeezing him. So he ran out of air and couldn't holler anymore. So he finally gave up and relaxed. I was like 30 years old, and I was in pretty good physical shape. And it took about all my strength to do that. I told Anna Mary, I said, you'll have to win over him too. And uh, so I think she managed some way or other, but that was Billy. He was already on Ritalin at three years old. And um, the social worker would take Anna Marie and him to <coughs> Morgantown to see a specialist. <clears throat> and we, we, asked, we had asked the specialist if we could stop the Ritalin. And he said, uh, you can, but when he starts school, he'll need it again. And that's the way it worked out. So he was on Ritalin, and later on they got him on Dexedrine. And... Um, you know, when we applied for foster care, we didn't ask for a special child. But that's what the Lord sent our way. And he was with us for 22 years until July the 4th, 2001, he moved into his own apartment. Um, he was 25 years old at the time. Well, I taught, uh, I taught at North Fork from 1974 to 1981. And then uh, I uh, quit teaching after seven years. Seven's the perfect number, you know. And um, the uh, school committee uh, had asked uh, Colleen Beachy, I think, about teaching. She was teaching here at Berea. Well, she was teaching here, so she said, uh, she said, ask my little brother, uh, Sterling. And uh, so he came and taught for several years. And uh, there was an interesting lesson there for me um, I had trained to be a teacher, and uh, I think I did the best I knew how. But when Sterling came, he taught him so much more than I did. Uh, they built a, a garage shop for Paul Hartzler, uh, and then he taught him woodworking, I think, in that shop. Uh, he taught him to tan hides. He taught him music. Uh, I never got very far with music. I think about as far as I got was... Um, Praise and thanksgiving, let everyone bring unto our Lord for every good thing or something like that. But uh, he taught them to sing. And uh, I think most everybody was at that program. Uh, this would have been probably along about 1984, maybe. Uh, in uh, the, the school program in the spring, uh, there were a number of fellows in the high school and they sang this song, We Are the Men. 
and it really brought out the men's voices. And I got to thinking about that, and I actually found it this week. Um, see, I think I thought I brought it. Uh, I could print it off. See if I have it somewhere. Yeah. I asked a couple this week, I asked a couple students that he had back then, and they remembered it. But um, we're the men of the chorus, we're the men, we're the ones you seldom hear, we're the men. The composers all ignore us, they don't sound so glorious. We're the men of the chorus, we're the men. When they need someone to ooh, it's the men. When they need someone to awe, it's the men. When when they need someone to rest, they then can do it best. We're the men of the chorus, we're the men. But the tables have been turned by the writer of this song. He's given us a part to sing. He has cleverly designed every note and every rhyme, so every phrase has our melodic ring. We're the men of the chorus, we're the men. We sing parts that often bore us, we're the men. But tonight we'll sing our heart out. We'll really bring our part out. We're the men of the chorus. We're the men. Well, that was quite a song. <laughs> it really brought out the men's voices, I'll guarantee you. <laughs> well, I was ordained in uh, 1982. And maybe I'll just share a little something about that also. In the fall of 1973, there was an ordination, and uh, I was nominated that year. And I was still had a year to go in school. We'd just been married, and uh, I really struggled with that. Um, you know, you don't want to say no to the Lord, but I just didn't really feel... I, well, I didn't feel like I could handle it. Now, I remember Howard Brubaker saying you should never feel like you can handle it. Uh, but Brother Lloyd Hurst, he felt like a person should have somewhat of a personal call. So anyway, I didn't go through the lot. Uh, Larry Showalter and Elvin Camel were ordained ministers that time, and Nelson Heatwell and Bobby Wanger were ordained deacons all at that ordination. Then in 1980, there was a deacon ordination in West Virginia, and I was nominated there. And I didn't feel called at all to be a deacon, but I thought, whatever. And so the ones in the lot were Paul Hartzler and John Weaver and myself, and John Weaver was ordained. And then in 1982, there was an ordination uh, over here on this side of the mountain. They were wanting a deacon. And on that side of the mountain, they were wanting a minister. And so um, I was nominated as all one district at that time. And so when the bishops came to visit me, you know, they went through the questions and so on. And I said, uh, now is this for a deacon or minister? Because the deacon, see, it was for a deacon here and a minister back there. And they hadn't said, well, it's for the minister in West Virginia. And... Uh, so there was no lot. So I was ordained, and Wade nicely was ordained deacon over here, and I don't think there was a lot then. I'm maybe not sure about that. So then I served four years at Brushy Run, and uh, if 
from 1982 to 1986, and then we were asked to move to uh, Bartow, and I was there from 1986 to 2002. There were some things I remember, a few things uh, to, I'll share. Uh, one of our social workers, and I, I can't remember, I forgot to ask Anna Murray what her name was, a uh, young lady that not been out of college that long, but somehow we clicked. We had somewhat different lifestyles, but uh, I asked her one time, I said, uh, how do you handle your job? In other words, you have to go into these dysfunctional homes and take children out. And I mean, how do you manage? Uh, she said, and this stuck with me, she said, every person deserves respect. And I thought if she could say that about the people she has to deal with, how much more should we be able to say that about our brothers and sisters in the church? Another memory I have I mean, there's lots of memories. I just picked out some. There was this um, um, family of uh, well-known old-time musicians, the Hammonds family. Uh, some of their recordings are actually in the Library of Congress. And uh, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute about Burl Hammonds. But this Hammonds family, I'll just sidetrack for a little something. I understand that the Hammonds family was was something was said to them about uh, performing at the dedication of the Pearl Buck Homestead at Hillsborough, West Virginia. She grew up at Hillsborough, West Virginia, Pearl Buck. And another sideline, uh, she, Pearl Buck and my grandpa Kaufman were second cousins because his grandpa, Samuel Kaufman, was a brother to Pearl Buck's grandmother, Frances Kaufman, but be that as it may. Uh, but anyway, they, uh, so they asked the Hammonds family about singing or performing there at that dedication in the 1960s, I think it was. And uh, they said something to them about, uh, you know, would they maybe not be um, uh, overwhelmed with all the dignitaries and stuff that would be there. And they said, whether it's the town drunk or the president of the United States, it wouldn't make any difference. And I think they were disinvited. Um, but the, uh, the, we went, okay, so we, at least one time, we visited Burl Hammonds. He was about the last one of the originals that were living. And he, it was through a connection, uh, somebody was coming to church at that time uh, a relative, he was an uncle or something of either her or her husband. And so we did, but we went to his funeral. And the person who preached his funeral was Dwight Diller. I, I think, I wonder if Dwight didn't have Mennonite background, I'm not sure. I think he might have been from Maryland. But anyway, I don't have that real clear. But he preached Burl Hammond's funeral. And what I remember from that was, he said when he came into that West Virginia area, he said he was a, well, I, I don't know what words he used, but basically his, his life was a wreck. And he was, he was just uh, out of it. And uh, he said the Hammonds family took him in and treated him just like anybody else, just treated him normal and accepted him the way he was. He said every day he thought about suicide, but he knew that wasn't an option until he, got his, he finally got his feet on the ground. But, the, but I think... 
I think he must have said something along this line because I know it stuck with me. We, we value people based on their ability to perform. And the Hammonds family did not relate to him on his ability to perform because he could not perform at that stage in his life. And that's a, that was a lesson to me too because by and large in our subculture, our Mennonite subculture, we value people based on their ability to perform. And uh, that's not the way it should be. I mean, I'm not making, I hope I'm not making a real much of a blanket statement there, but I think to a certain extent it's that way. Well, another thing that happened while we were at Bartow, uh, the, the church there, the, the church that's there now was built, uh, when we were there, it was still the old church that was built in the 1920s. And um, so there was interest in more Sunday school rooms, and of course we had outside toilets too, and the old building just wasn't worth fixing up. And so there was interest in, interest in building a new church. And um, so the, uh, it, was a, it was a community church. It had been deeded to the community. And the, um, I thought the simplest thing would be just to read something from, uh, if I can find it here, the um, Leaders and Institutions book. It also gives some updates on, on uh, in the, the buildings, schools, and churches. And so um, this is what it said about Boyd. So the church there had been called Brush Run Mennonite Church, and the one at one go had been called Brushy Run. There was always confusion between the two. And so, they, so the new church was given the name Boyer Hill because uh, the neighboring community there, the little wide space in the road just down the hill from the church was Boyer Hill, Boys Boyer. In 1922, a plot of land was deeded for a union church to wit the Church of God, Methodist, and Brethren. The deed further stated, it agreed to and understood that all Christian denominations except Roman Catholics and Normans, it was spelled Normans, N-O-R-M-A-N-S. So I thought, well, uh, William the Conqueror probably wouldn't have been welcome there. But um, they meant Mormons are to have the privilege of using the poperty, P-O-P-E-R-T-Y is the way it was spelled, herein conveyed. And then in 1960, the Mennonites were invited to use the property. And um, so when we decided to do a new church, the three denominations mentioned in the deed graciously deeded the property to the trustees of the Mennonite, of the Brush Run Mennonite Church. An adjoining landowner sold additional parcel of land. And so it came to pass. The first service in the new building was on Easter Sunday, April 7, 1996. The first, this, this dedication service was held on, okay, the dedication service was held on June 16, 1996. The atmosphere was one of joy and thanksgiving. This was somewhat different from some of the joy that the 1920s sheriff reported concerning the dedication of the original building Seems he had to take some observers in hand for being filled with less than desirable spirits. So things do change. Oh, and at the dedication, uh, James Landis gave a little talk. And uh, he said that uh, people talk about coming back to West Virginia or coming over to West Virginia. He said, now maybe they can talk about coming up to West Virginia. So, 
Well, in the spring of 2002, we moved to Petersburg to serve in the North Fork congregation. And um, it's interesting trying to find a place to live. Um, the at, at that at, um, when we lived at Bartow, that house there, uh, close to the church where Dave Planks live now, that was still church property. And then when Dave moved there, he bought it all for the church. Uh, so I, I, I've never had any property of my own. And so in trying to find a place to live, I'd put ads in a couple different places, advertising for farm work or tutoring or, or nursing care or whatever. And uh, the way we actually got a place to live was there was this old lady. She had been quite the lady in the community. And um, she was 101 years old. She had spent the winter with her daughter in Texas. And they told her she had three options. She could stay in Texas with her daughter. She could go to a nursing home or she could go home if, they would, if she would allow someone to live in with her. And she said, I'm going home. And so they were looking for someone to live in with her. And um, the son, the older son, who uh, lived in Maryland, uh, and he had a degree from MIT, he did his work very meticulously. Uh, but he had contacted the hospital in Petersburg and asked them if they had any recommendations. Well, I had told our dentist, we went to the dentist in Petersburg, Dr. Alexander, who grew up in the Port Republic area. But anyway, his daughter worked at the hospital, and so she recommended us, and that's how we got together. And that was a good experience. She was an old-time Methodist. Um, well, then she only lived, she lived less than a year after that. So then from there, from living in her house, well, when we lived in her house, we had a bedroom upstairs and another small room for my office. That was what we had there. Well, then from there, we moved into an old farmhouse. Okay, from after she passed away, we, Charles and Virginia Halterman that lived in Petersburg were looking for someone to relate to them. They were getting older. And, um, and so we ended up being kind of being available to help them as needed. They didn't really need a lot of help. But he was a very wealthy man, and, uh, and uh, he had bought the farm where his wife grew up, uh, just up past the airport there at Petersburg, and uh, the farmhouse was empty. And uh, so we moved, in, we moved in there. It was the nicest place, actually, we've ever lived, an old farmhouse, but it was fixed up. And uh, there, was a, there was a wood cook stove in the, in the kitchen. And it, was, uh, it had a turquoise finish. It was really nice. And I told her, I said, you better move that out of here. We, we, uh, we might damage it. And she said, that stove is a fixture of the house. And so we used it. We cooked on it and so on. Um, we had an electric range there, too. But there was a lesson there, too. Charles and Virginia had one son. They just had one child. And uh, like I say, they were very wealthy. And the son, along about the year 2000, I think, the son and his wife disappeared. They moved out, moved away. I don't know what the conflicts were, 
altogether. They disappeared out west. No contact, whatever. And when Charles died, they didn't come to the funeral. And then we moved back here before Virginia died, but they didn't come to her funeral either. And she gave all of her money to um, a niece that lives here, or did at that time at least, live here in Virginia. And uh, because that niece would visit her, and so she gave all her millions to that niece. I remember one time when, when Charles was still living, and he had uh, some dementia by then, but uh, we were walking through the house, we were in the basement, and uh, there was this file cabinet that had these notebooks, stack of notebooks on top of the file cabinet. He patted those notebooks and said, it's all there, it's all there. I think as he was talking about his financial records. But all that money could not buy a good relationship with her son. Well, then in the end of 2008, we moved back here to take care of my parents. By that time, they were somebody needed to do that, and Anna Mary's good with older people, and we had already decided that we would do that. July 1, 2011, and mother, she passed away January 28, 2013. And then sometime after that, we moved into the cottage across the drive from Myrna Shank's house. And we were there until February of 2017 when we moved to VMRC. So we'd been at VMRC for six years. Um, I don't know exactly what year it was. I probably could have figured it out. But as soon as we were eligible age-wise, Anna Murray, of course, being three and a half years older than me, but as soon as we were eligible age-wise, I put my name on the list at VMRC, since there again, I don't have any property of my own. And while we were in West Virginia, I think it was twice while we were there, maybe once, they called and said, you know, we have something for you. And I said, well, I, we can't come now. I've got, you know, still got responsibilities back here. And they also called while we were taking care of mom and dad. So if they call, if they call you three times and you don't take it, your name goes to the bottom of the list and you have to work your way up again. So I told the lady, I said, uh, the Carol Brunk there, I said, well, take my name off the one-bedroom list and put me on the two-bedroom list. And she said, well, I don't know when you'll ever get one of those because uh, I've been here 10 years and there's only been one change. They have about 100 units there at Heritage Haven and they only have three two-bedroom units. Well, within three years of the time that we had had our name put on the two-bedroom list, two of them came open. And Lewis Overholtz from uh, South Carolina or Georgia, whichever South Carolina I think it was, got the first one and we got the second one. So the Lord provided that way too. So in devotions, it was mentioned or uh, about God's faithfulness. And I can say that, great is thy faithfulness. And I thought I'd close with a couple of songs, song lyrics. One, you are my all in all. You are my strength when I am weak. You're the treasure that I seek. You're my all in all. Seeking you as a precious jewel, Lord, to give up, I'd be a fool. You are my Jesus, Lamb of God. Worthy is your name. Another song that I remember, I remember Valley Voices singing this song. 
You are beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, too wonderful for comprehension, like nothing ever seen or heard. Who can grasp your infinite wisdom? Who can fathom the depth of your love? You are beautiful beyond description, majesty enthroned above, and I stand, I stand in all of you. Holy God, to whom all praise is due, I stand in all of you.